0: In 2003, cooks of Georgia state prison detected a very strong odor of ammonia in meat products, even though they were frozen. As there was no notice on the label or ingredient list to indicate that this meat had been treated with it, the cooks thought it had been contaminated accidentally. The ammonia levels turned out to be similarly high as an in incidence involving chicken and milk, which had sickened school children, but it wasn't an accident or abnormality. Dr. Charles Tand, a Georgia Agriculture Department official, said, I've never seen anything like it. The company producing the meat, Beef Products Inc., argued that the ammonia was not dangerous. They said ammonia is a critically important part of producing what the manufacturer called lean, finely textured beef. 2008, staggering 70% of all ground meat sold in the US contained lean, finely textured beef. You could go into a store, think you buy just ground beef, and get ground beef including ammonia-treated scraps that used to be processed into pet food and industrial oil. Get your popcorn out, put on your favorite pair of slippers and possibly some 3D glasses. This is getting funky today. As the crescendo of this season on food history, I want to share with you a rabbit hole I went into rather deeply, because it shocked me like only a real-life thriller can. Stick around to learn about how pink slime passed regulation to end up in meat all over the US, how Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists stood up against this consumer fraud, and most shockingly, how this ended in one of the biggest defamation lawsuits in history telling us a lot about how speaking out against the food establishment can become ugly very fast. Fortunately, I'm based in Berlin and not the US, so I can report on this without being sued, I hope. (laughs) You're listening to our fifth season on the history for the future of food. My name is Marina Schmidt. I'm very glad to share with you a bit of my research today. Let's jump right in. You're listening to Red to Green, the audiobook-style podcast on food tech and sustainability. Moving the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. While steaks and good cuts are attractive to most carnivorous consumers, many scraps and trimmings are processed into pet food or cooking oil, because they are more likely to be contaminated with fecal matter and therefore E. coli. But this changed when research confirmed that adding ammonia to meat scraps can effectively kill potentially deadly E. coli bacteria. Beef Products Inc., a producer of cooking oil and pet food, saw this as an opportunity to enter the more profitable human food market. The company designed a production process in which scraps are heated and spun into a centrifuge to separate the beef from the fat and bones. The meat is then sent through pipes where it is gassed with ammonia, flash-frozen and compressed into blocks. The USDA confirmed that the ammonia treatment destroys E. coli and even stopped testing in 2007. Investigations by the New York Times uncovered government and industry records that showed dozens of E. coli and salmonella occurrences in beef products inks meat. But due to questionable legislation and likely some lobbying, the beef processed with ammonia was excluded from recalls, even if it was found to be contaminated. That leads one to wonder how safe ammonia is really. So is it good or bad or really bad? So I will from now on oftentimes call it either LFTB or just pink slime. Pink slime would typically include most of the material from the outer surface of the carcass and some inner cuts. These scraps contain larger microbial populations, which the alkalinity of ammonia would kill. However, the USDA pointed out the issues of taste of a product with a pH of 9.5 which is a pH that no products that we eat have naturally. The problem is, the more ammonia used, the firmer meat would smell and taste like. If less is used, it doesn't have enough concentration of ammonia to kill potentially deadly E. coli bacteria. Another issue is the toxicity of ammonia. Some authors argue that ammonia is frequently used in food processing and that it's safe and has been confirmed by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Therefore, the use of ammonia to disinfect meat is legitimate. The public outcry is supposedly a reaction based on consumers' irrational decision making, in which potential hazards are either ignored or given too much weight, nothing in between. Indeed, I don't know why I'm talking Italian. (laughs) Indeed, as of October 2021, the FDA shows the use of the substance following current good manufacturing processes. However, In the USDA archives from 2014, one can find the National Organic Standards Board arguing for a ban on ammonium hydroxide. Ammonium hydroxide is a severe irritant which must be handled properly because exposure to humans and other mammals during production or use presents a serious toxicological concern. It is toxic by all routes, inhalation, dermal and ingestion. And the toxicity is well documented. It has the potential to cause significant toxic damage to humans, mammals, aquatic systems and greenhouse gases. Lastly, proponents of ammonia argue that it is a food waste concern. With an average lifespan of two years, kettles consume a significant amount of resources on this planet. Meat is costly to produce and it's relatively inefficient to produce. This is sure a noble goal and Look, it's also reality. We're talking quite often about how gruesome it is that everything is so efficiently structured that there are these production lines putting animals into pieces and trying to take all the parts apart to use them. And it is gruesome on the one hand and it's also weirdly respectful on the other because if you take an animal's life, and here I'm getting into personal philosophical ideas, then you might as well try to use all there is up for good use in whatever shape or form. So that means also using the bones and all of the scraps associated with it. However, however, (laughs) the environmental impact of ammonia may outweigh the benefits of reducing food waste, primarily because, look, it doesn't make sense. These scraps would otherwise just be used for pet food and oil. Therefore, it's preferably better to choose that route. By the way, one of my best friends sometimes likes to eat pet food when she feeds her cats. I'm, I'm absolutely shocked by it. I'm like terrified by it. I'm just like, I can't believe you eat pet food sometimes. She's just, just like, she opens a can and she thinks it's delicious. I'm just like, oh my God. Like, if you would know what's in there. Okay, so on a tangent, back there. In summary, ammonia use in meat is not preferable and should be communicated clearly to consumers. Yet, in 1993, lean finely textured beef was approved in ground beef without separate labeling requirements as a manufacturing ingredient. And that's so interesting because I think there are certain areas like natural flavors and manufacturing ingredients where our label system really falls short because it's just not transparent what's actually behind this. Well, when BPI's meat landed on the desk of federal officials in Washington in 2001, the company had conducted two company-sponsored studies, one undertaken by the Iowa State University, and since then the USDA has been criticized for concluding it was safe without conducting independent investigations. And I think this is just also a larger issue in general that the companies themselves are paying for the research, therefore it is biased, of course, but then you can also not fund so much food science research to actually double check everything. So what's the right thing to do, right? Just a year later, USDA microbiologist Gerald Zernstein called it pink slime in a 2002 email saying, I do not consider the stuff to be ground beef and I consider allowing it in ground beef to be a form of fraudulent labeling. Let's look at the history of media and public attention, how this got out, because it was not private investigators or like some kind of police getting behind this or some kind of human rights organization, but it was the media. In 2009, the New York Times was the first major outlet to criticize the use of this beef generating some public and media attention. The author, Michael Moss, received a Pulitzer Prize for his journalistic work on the beef industry. Possibly even more important, he inspired Bettina Siegel, a former lawyer, writer, and mother living in Houston, Texas. Bettina Siegel started a petition in 2012, intending to ban the use of pink slime. She was highly concerned about the quality of meat, or lack thereof, that was served to her children in school. In the petition, she promoted having pink slime removed from school menus. Her request resonated and within three weeks, the campaign was covered in national TV programs and garnered 225,000 signatures. The same month, several companies announced that they would stop using pink slime in their products. Two weeks after the first report, BPI ran a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal calling it a campaign of lies and deceit. Just three days later, the satirical news anchor John Stewart covered the issue, stating that this pink slime should be called ammonia-soaked centrifuge-separated by-product paste. <laughs> as a satirical show, he wasn't as likely to be affected by potential legal battles, which concern classic media outlets and even public personalities like Oprah, as we will touch on later. On March the 7th, 2012, ABC broadcasted a critical review of lean finely textured beef in their evening news program, as well as 11 follow-up reports until April of that year, referring to it as pink slime just as the microbiologist from the USDA had done. BPI lost about 80% of its sales within less than a month and had to close three of its four plants. The effects of this media outcry were significant and have lasted until this day. A survey commissioned by Red Robin was released on April 2021 finding that 88% of US adults were aware of pink slime, with 30% being extremely concerned and 76% somewhat concerned. The meat manufacturer sued ABC News, the USDA, and their employees for product disparagement, defamation, and tortious interference. To do so, they used food level, or otherwise known as food disparagement laws, originally designed to protect farmers, not manufacturers. BPI lawyers argued that ABC News misled consumers into believing that the product is not beef or even meat, not safe for human consumption and not nutritious, as well as not approved by the USDA by proper means. To the surprise of many consumers, environmental and food safety activists, and to the surprise of ABC News, BPI won the case, because ABC News implied that the product was not safe. Even though they had stated throughout the report that the authorities deemed the product safe, calling it pink slime 137 times, describing how it is made and potential health concerns were enough to imply that it is not safe, despite no proven factual misstatements. And that is the shocking thing for me. This shows a significant mishap in the media and legislative system. Making factually correct statements can be a disparagement if it concerns food products, it's shocking. At this point in my research, I was so deep into the rabbit hole I just got to an even bigger question. How is this possible? ABC News was sued for 170 million. That is a massive sum, especially for a media outlet. So fun fact, under South Dakota's agricultural disparagement law, another synonym for this, the amount could have been up to 5.7 billion. 177 million was actually quite cheap compared to how expensive it could have become. Just the court case alone likely cost ABC News a million. Let's look at this brittle legal fundament, food defamation laws. Have you been enjoying this episode so far? The next time you open up your company's Slack or Discord channel, or you log into LinkedIn, maybe think about this episode or Red to Green in general and share it with your colleagues or your community. This really helps us a lot to keep doing Red to Green and keep delivering high quality content to you absolutely for free. Thank you so much and back to the episode. So there are a couple of different ways of terming these laws. and. They're all the same. It's a little bit like in cellular agriculture, you can say cultured meat, cell cultured, cell based. It's the same here with defamation laws, or libel laws, or food libel laws, or veggie libel laws. It's all the same cloud of meaning. The foundation for the ruling against ABC News started already in 1989. That year, the Natural Resource Defense Council published a report about the dangers of pesticide use for children including the substance Alar. CBS, news and media outlet, covered this potential issue of Alar according to the publication in their news program 60 Minutes, stating that apple growers use it to improve growth and apple appearance. CBS criticized the use of the chemical growth regulator Daminocide and pointed out its risk for children, leading to plummeting sales quotas. After the show aired, farmers' profits dropped as Americans reduced their apple consumption. The Washington state apple growers sued NRDC, the media outlet CBS, and other news outlets airing the program, claiming the reporting was inaccurate and disparaging. That time, the apple growers didn't win the lawsuit, but lobbyists pursued influencing legislature in 11 states to turn future rulings differently. 27 states were considering an agriculture food product disparagement statute until the end of the 20th century. At first, these legislature proposals were vetoed, for example, by Governor Roy Romer of Colorado because it would inhibit debate on health issues – yes, it would – and the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech. Nonetheless, soon after, food liberal laws were introduced. Ever since the enactment, the legislature has been attacked for being unconstitutional. And indeed, liberal laws for corporations are rather controversial. Historically, they've been used to protect the state from verbal attacks, whether justified or unjustified, and criminalize criticism of existing social hierarchies. For individuals, liberal and defamation laws can be important to protect themselves, from being the scapegoat of some shocker headline or media outlets with less noble intentions. However, in the case of business libel, the protected interests are not social relations or individuals, but economic. Food companies can protect their interests due to malicious falsehood, including protecting branding and corporate image in case it fits the criteria falsity malice, and special damage. And the issue is, these are somewhat open-ended definitions. Corporations regularly use libel laws to sue scientists and journalists for publishing work that calls them to question the safety and efficacy of products. I tell you, just look at Monsanto, there <laughs> are enough examples just in that little universe. They are often the foundation for slap suits, strategic lawsuits against public participation used by corporations to silence critics, and as such should be reserved for situations in which fundamental human interests are at stake. If even government agencies need to fear being sued by industries for pointing out potential safety issues of food, it's a nonsensical system. Criticism against liberal laws even came from a representative of the chemical industry, pointing out that the food industry is demanding special treatment already in 1998. The best defense of an industry against damage from irresponsible attacks on its products does not lie with veggie liberal laws or their equivalents. Such a defense lies in earning public trust, working with and not trying to intimidate the press and having their own science in good order. A courtroom is not an ideal place to decide what science is good and what isn't. Who would have thought that this comes from somebody working from the chemical industry? (laughs) Historically, lawsuits have been used to silence criticism of tobacco, coal and over-the-counter drugs which were useless or unsafe, as well as pesticides and food additives, which have time and time again been proven to be dangerous. The food industry is demanding special treatment with these liberal laws that the automobile and chemical industry don't receive. The following section showcases an example of how these laws are used to intimidate not just media outlets like ABC News, but also public figures like Oprah Winfrey. Have you heard about Oprah Winfrey being sued? Well, Texas Cattleman sued Oprah Winfrey based on the food libel statute because she criticized animal farming practices in her TV show she interviewed an expert on mad cow's disease in the u.s and stated that she doesn't want to eat beef anymore this led to a drop in beef sales supposedly the south dakota liberal law includes any food product of agriculture that is perishable which is phrased so liberally that it could include anything no matter how processed and how far from the actual food production. Fortunately for Oprah, the judge ruled that processed beef is not perishable food, a stance that could have easily been different. Oprah's victory in court was not guaranteed and Winfrey's attorney criticized that even though they won, the process would have bankrupted most other defendants. That is why these laws need to be replaced and struck down because they punish the innocent for exercising their First Amendment rights. One reasonable argument brought up by the beef industry, both in the case of Oprah and ABC News, is the need to distinguish facts from personal opinions in reporting. Newspaper journals like the New York Times now distinguish opinion pieces from regular reporting. Most talk shows and news programs have not adopted this separation yet. A further argument is that the media needs to be held accountable for factual reporting as irresponsible journalism can harm livelihoods of farmers and cattlemen, according to the National Cattlemen's Association. And, well, they do have a point, right? On the other hand, Oprah's TV show is not a truth-seeking news outlet, but rather an opinion segment per design. Additionally, what is true and a fact is hard to distinguish nowadays, and corporations have significant power to influence what is perceived as true or not. While Oprah was able to win the lawsuit, ABC News didn't, yet one might argue that it was still worth it because the attention led to some change. Before all this media attention, lean finely textured beef was found in about 70% of ground beef sold in the US, absolutely invisible to consumers. After the coverage of Pink Slime, McDonald's, Burger King, and Taco Bell, as well as several grocery chains, stopped using it, the sales plummeted from 5 million pounds per week to 2 million. The USDA picked up the routine testing of E. coli and salmonella in beef products and dropped the exemption from recalls, but ammonia is still categorized as a processing agent, which does not need to be listed on the list of ingredients, a highly questionable situation regarding consumer education. Even after all this process, £7 million were still used for children's school lunch. The USDA agreed to offer school districts the option of ordering beef without slime, how generous, followed by the legislature requiring full disclosure on food labels. The price of ground beef rose by one third after that. While lean, finely textured beef since then has to be labelled on ground beef products, it is still coming back into the food supply. Little laws are still active in 13 states in the US. So to sum up, ammonia has been found to be toxic in any form of ingestion. And you know, I've looked quite a bit into toxicology. The thing is, it's always argued that anything is toxic at a certain level. And while that is true, it is also oftentimes a way to escape the question whether you want to have the toxicity in your food or in your system if you have the choice and whether the benefits truly outweigh the toxicity that is there. The low quality food scraps used to produce lean finely textured beef would otherwise be used to produce oil and pet food and that sounds to me like a perfectly fine and suitable use. It would be safer in terms of the environment and human health. The United States Department of Agriculture did not undertake independent studies to test the human health impact and their own staff termed the product pink slime. In 2009, the New York Times published a Pulitzer-winning article on the issue, followed by a viral petition to ban pink slime in school lunches and ABC's reporting, which led to the famous court case. ABC News lost and had to pay over 177 million. Food label laws were the foundation for ABC's loss. Even when making claims, Which are not false, individuals and institutions can be faced with heavy legal battles. Liberal laws are therefore criticized as threatening First Amendment rights. The Food and Drug Administration and the United States Department of Agriculture have the legal authority over 500,000 food labels, which begs the question, how can the government ensure compliance? The answer is simple, it does not. The USDA and FDA stopped food sampling to ensure quality and safety more than 25 years ago. In 1993, the USDA eliminated requirements for laboratory testing, stating, the agency believes that food companies should be responsible for the accuracy of the information on labels. Yeah. Look, I find it really sad that journalism has become something that a lot of people find to be a lower profession, especially investigative journalism, is so freaking important. With the complexity of supply chains and productions increasing, it becomes impossible for a centralized system like government agencies to keep up with changes, faster than the regulatory process Journalism can push consumer awareness of potential toxins and adulterations of their food. Of course the media has its faults. It can be used and abused by activists, lobbyists, and undercover influencers. Just like described in the book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator by Ryan Holiday. By the way... One of my favorite books is so fascinating, which shows that indeed there is not that much scientific due diligence sometimes, especially in more mainstream media outlets. But it's also necessary to pay for media, to fix our system a little bit, to create the capacity and the time to do such deep investigative journalism. While Oprah won the legal battle, this seems to have been a win for the beef industry after all. Paul Engler, the head of an Amarillo-based beef and pork producer, stated in an interview in 2011, I think we did some good. After that, I think they were more careful about getting good experts and people that had good reputations and so forth that could make statements on an authoritative basis. I think we cleaned up her act confirming that these legal battles can be seen as slap suits just to silence critics. And there's a saying, if you can't convince them, confuse them, which applies to a lot of corporate science manipulation and consumer marketing. In the case of pink slime and liberal laws, the saying could be, if you can't silence them, intimidate them. My main takeaway from this is just avoid processed foods in general, we are always on the safer side, just going with simple foods, cooking on our own, trying to eat stuff that your grandma would have recognized as food. Because we don't know, well, we don't know. That's the issue. Our food system is not as transparent as we hope it to be. It's absolutely impossible to actually understand what all of the factors, all of the production methods and the ingredients or processing ingredients that have gone into producing something. And when it comes to personal health and even also sustainability, products that have been less processed are a safer bet. This has been quite a ride. Thank you for listening to this food history season. It's been a lot of work. Please, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify especially. That really helps the rankings and helps us to keep producing quality content and giving it to you absolutely for free. By the way, I'm looking for writers, people who are interested in the topics that we're covering at Ritter Green and who want to hone their skills or just apply their skills in writing to create interesting thought pieces on the themes of red to green. So if that sounds like you and you're a native English speaker, then just look up red to green dot solutions and on our website, you'll find a way to get involved or reach out to me via LinkedIn. Thank you so much. And our next season that is awaiting you is gonna be biotechnology in food. A big thank you for audio editing to Celeste Gupta and for editing the script to Lara Toyman. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.